Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you all are here today. Um, I missed y'all last week. Uh, about this time last week, I was actually uh, in Illinois uh, at a church camp at New Life Christian Camp in Rushville, Illinois. And just about this time, I was getting ready to start preaching my seventh sermon in seven days. Um, you might notice as I speak today that my voice will trail off to more gravel than there usually is in it. Um, I apologize. I blame that on an amazing week of camp. Um, so anyway, and then I went to go see my newest granddaughter, who's three weeks old, and uh, it was fantastic, but I probably didn't get as much sleep while I was in Missouri as I ought to have, so I apologize in advance um, for my voice. So you guys just got to listen a little closer this morning uh, to hear the words that God might have um, for us today. So I was at camp last week, but a few weeks ago, I want to tell you about something I did. So I, I, I went to an AA meeting an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and, and it wasn't my first. Um, so I'm going to wait, wait, but before social media blows up with my confession about my problem, um, I, I didn't go to my AA meeting as, as a, you know, a court requirement. I didn't go to this AA meeting because the leadership here at Fork thought I needed to. I did not go to an AA meeting because my family and friends had an intervention for me. See, by the grace of God, I have never, ever had to struggle with um, excessive alcohol or substance abuse. Um, I've never had a real desire to make alcohol an important part of my life. In fact, some of you have probably heard me proclaim at some point in time or another, I have never met an alcohol that I like as much as a good Mountain Dew. So there we go. So at this AA meeting, though, I was actually there to support one of my friends. See, one of my friends was celebrating five years of sobriety. Yeah, exactly. Before I came to Maryland, I didn't even know that was a thing to go and support your friends who are having those milestones, right? But I've been to so many of those since I've been here in Maryland, and I'm so thankful for them because I get to come alongside my friends in their recovery journey to be an encouragement to them and let them be an encouragement to me. Just this last week while I was at this camp in Illinois, I met three different guys who are all in recovery. They're all, you know, moving past their addictions. And I hope that the time that I spent with them was as encouraging and valuable to them as the things that I learned and the things that I gleaned and my time was uh, the way that they impacted me in my life. See, I've experienced that as I've spent time with men and women who are going through recovery that... You know, as they're addressing their issues, there's so much to be learned by listening to them, by watching them, by connecting with their lives, by hearing their stories. And I think the same holds true for you and me if we're following after Jesus Christ, that as we see other people's lives and as we hear other people's stories, that we can find points of familiarity, that we can see models of, of transparency, that we can experience alongside of each other's seasons of victory. And I think that as we share life and do stories together, that we can realize that we're not alone in our struggles, that there are others that we can learn from and lean into as we move forward in our spiritual journey. And as we're going to see in the text here in a few minutes, that that's kind of one of those situations, one of those stories, but we'll get there in a second. See, something else that I've learned over and over as I've supported my friends in recovery and as I've gone to their meetings with them, they say it all the time that if you're in a 12-step in a program, if you're in the program and you want to make the program to work, you've got to do the steps 
Over and over here, you got to do the steps. Now, I don't know all 12 recovery steps. Perhaps I will learn them someday. But that night of that meeting, as I was preparing my head and my heart for this message, there were two steps that stood out to me. I mean, they just jumped out to me. Um, and there's steps eight and nine, and I want to share those with you. First, like the eighth one is, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And then step nine is we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do such would injure them or others. You see, for the addict, for the alcoholic, those that are in that recovery process, those that are working the steps, um, making amends is part of the journey. It's part of what they do. And I think for me and you, as we experience Jesus, as we pursue him in our lives, that making amends probably ought to be part of our spiritual journey as well. I think there are steps where those who we may have heard along the way, some steps that we might need to take to make some things right. This morning, we're going to continue in our study uh, in the gospel or the book of Luke, um, where we've been highlighting some of those accounts from the life of Jesus Christ. And as Luke has written these, uh, these words, you know, it's just been this great collection of, of, uh, of life-changing, life-teaching parables. It's been a, a great collection of actual historical accounts. It's been kind of the day-to-day-to-day life of Jesus Christ that he has communicated to his friend Theophilus and as a result, 2,000 years later, communicating to us where we can learn, just as Theophilus did, to embrace the deity of Christ, to accept the love that he has for us. And in turn, we can choose to start living our lives in a way that show this outpouring of Jesus' love to other people. Now, to set the stage for today's teaching, I want to share a passage from what might be to some kind of an obscure book of the Bible, tucked away in our New Testament all the way back at the end, kind of toward the book of Revelation. And it's a letter that was written by John. John, uh, who was called the disciple that Jesus loved. And John wrote these three different letters, and he wrote this one letter, and he wrote it to the chosen lady and her children. This is Second John, and there's only one chapter. Um, and I'm going to read from verses 5 through 6. And John is writing, he says, I am writing to remind you, dear friends, that we should love one another. Well, this is not a new commandment, but one we've had from the beginning. Love means doing what God has commanded us, and he has commanded us to love one another, just as you heard from the beginning. Now, I want to think about, I want you to think about that as John is saying, this is the command from God. This is what we're supposed to obey. See, whether you grew up in church or not, or depending on what your take uh, on Christianity was based on the Christians that you knew as you grew up, or what it looks like to obey God based on what you learned at home or in your church or in your denomination, your view of the commands of God might look just a little bit different than what we hear John saying right here. But what has God commanded of us, John says, it is to love one another. Now, it's highly probable that when you think of the commands of God, that your thoughts immediately flip back to the Jewish set of rules. We think immediately to the law handed down by God on the mountain to Moses. This list of over 600 rules and regulations that were part of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, part of our Bibles, these rules that were part of a covenant agreement between God and the nation of Israel. You're probably familiar with some of them. I hope so. Maybe you're familiar with a lot of them. And maybe you're like, ah, oh, Virgil, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. You're probably familiar with these things we call the Ten Commandments, 
right? Those are part of that law. The Ten Commandments, you know, those sacred rules that we see, you know, on some courthouse walls. We see them on refrigerator magnets. Uh, there's even a hardware store not too far from here that has them on their, outside of their building, painted on their structure, right? Ten Commandments. Now see, think about this. The Ten Commandments were handed down as part of the law to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish nation. And as we read through the book of Luke, most of the people that Jesus interacted with were not only familiar with these laws, they knew them, like really knew them. The Torah or the law of Moses was a, it was their education. It was a big deal. The law of Moses was not an elective. It was core curriculum for the Jew. And see, when it came to the Jews, even if they didn't want to follow them, even if they didn't like to follow them, even if they chose not to follow them, when it came to the law, the Jews in Jesus' day certainly knew what the law required. The Jews knew what the law required of them. It's a no-brainer. Our character and our account today, uh, even though he wasn't exactly known for being a law follower or a keeper of the law, he certainly knew what the law required of him. And when Jesus entered that story, well, let's just read from Luke chapter 19. So Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name, Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. We're gonna stop there for a moment. Perhaps you've read Zacchaeus' account a hundred different times. Maybe you've heard a lot of sermons on Zacchaeus. Maybe this is the first time you've ever even seen his name or heard his name. And as you were following along on the screen, you're really thankful that I said his name out loud because you weren't quite sure how to pronounce it. But see, Jesus was en route to become a self-invited guest at Zacchaeus' house. Now, we don't know whether that was his plan all along we don't know whether he seized an opportune moment when he saw Zacchaeus trying to get a peek of him. We just don't know. But suddenly Zacchaeus went from being a curious Jesus watcher to a serious Jesus host. I mean, Jesus is going to the house, right? I wonder, have you ever shown up unannounced or uninvited to somebody else's house, right? Or have you had people show up unannounced or uninvited to your home, right? You've been there. You know what that scramble looks like, right? You're hiding stuff, right? Have you ever noticed that there are some people um, who just show up and they always show up around mealtime and then they never leave? Yeah. Well, that happens. We feed a lot of people, Barb and I do, at our house. Um, when we lived in St. Louis, we had a, a college ministry and every Wednesday night we opened up our house and we'd have 30, 40, 50, 60 young adults like hanging out in our house, eating our food. And it was great. When I became a student pastor, we kind of did the same thing, you know, with our middle school students and our high school students. Um, and it was good. I mean, the, 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 the night was open for them. It was, it was food, it was fun, it was games. They were welcome to do that, right? 
Now, although the college kids would kind of show up when and if they wanted to, they would, you know, literally just show up. And I walked in my house one time, and there's a college kid sitting on my couch watching, uh, you know, the, the, the Final Four or something, basketball. And he's like, hey, I'm so-and-so, and your wife said I could come watch TV here. I'm like, okay, I'm in. All right, cool. Um, you know, high school kids, you know, they didn't always just show up, though. They could have. They could have said, hey, Virgil, I'm going to come eat your food. It would have been okay. But I think most of them thought maybe that was a little presumptuous or, or rude, a little off-putting just to kind of invite yourself there. We did have a parent that would do that, though. So we would have these gatherings at our house, and, and his kids didn't drive, so someone would drop them off, and he would come to pick them up. And every time he came to pick up his kids, he'd kind of give the polite, hey, Virgil, hey, Barb, nod to us, head straight for our kitchen table, and he would fill himself up a plate full of food every single time. But I don't really know that that's what we have going on here, right? In fact, we don't really even know if food was involved. I, I always assume there's food until I really read the Bible. I'm like, oh, maybe there wasn't. But knowing what we know about the Jewish culture, my guess is there probably was food, right? It just seemed like it would have happened, right? We assumed that there would. You see, though, unlike my grown-up friend who always wanted to help himself to the high school kids' food, I don't believe that when Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, that Jesus was looking for what he could gain from Zacchaeus. He wasn't looking for what he could get from Zacchaeus. I believe that Jesus was actually looking for what he could do for Zacchaeus. And I think that when Jesus shows up in our lives, he's not looking for what he can get from us. He's looking for what he can do for us because he has something for us. He came to save us. He came to give us new life. He came to give us eternity with him. And here we find Jesus. And I think it's interesting to note that Jesus wasn't afraid to rub shoulders with those whose society might have deemed undesirable, right? The same is true of Zacchaeus. In fact, in verse 7, he is called a notorious sinner. Now, I, I'm one of those people who has read this story or heard this story probably a hundred times. But as I was preparing to teach, I noticed something I had never seen before. You see, usually when Jesus hung out with the undesirable people, the people that complained about it, the people that gave him a hard time about it were the religious leaders. For example, in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, but the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with such scum? And then in Luke chapter 7, verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. But see, what stands out to me, though, when I read this account of Zacchaeus, this encounter between Jesus and Zacchaeus, is it isn't the religious leaders who are upset about it. It's his peers. It's the crowd. Fellow citizens. Fellow Jews. Verse 7. But the people were displeased, it says. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. And they grumbled. Which makes me ask the question, why would the crowd hate him so much? I mean, these are his people. And how, can, how bad can he be? And why would Jesus still want to go hang with him, even as bad as they make him out to be? But here's what we know about tax collectors of the day. Tax collectors were always lumped into the group of the worst kind of sinners, right? Tax collectors, especially the ones that were Jews, 
especially the ones that knew the law of Moses, especially the ones who knew not to covet, not to steal, like the Ten Commandments say, the ones who knew that the law says don't extort, don't defraud, don't take advantage of your fellow Jew, Though they knew better, the tax collectors in Jesus' day not only violated their religion, the laws of their religion by taxing more than what was owed, by collecting more taxes, you know, when they weren't due, by taxing things they shouldn't have been taxing to begin with, they also violated the laws of their own conscience. They were hated in their community because they weren't collecting taxes for the temple, which might have been okay. They weren't collecting taxes for the betterment of the Jewish nation, which might have also been okay. But no, 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 no. They were collecting taxes for the Roman government. The Roman government was their enemy. It was the very nation who oppressed them and opposed them. You see, Zacchaeus, in the eyes of his peers, in the eyes of his fellow Jew, was simply a traitor. Zacchaeus was a traitor. And he wasn't just any old tax collector. The scripture Luke records that he was a chief tax collector. He was a big gun. He was a boss. And then the people of his community wondered even, why would Jesus spend time in the company of this notorious sinner? And I wonder sometimes if we're like those people you know, we kind of pick and choose our sins, which sins are, well, that one's tolerable. Well, that one's acceptable, and well, that one's unforgivable. Not hanging out with that person. But see, Jesus came to meet us where we are. I am thankful that God sees all of our sins as forgivable. Every sin forgivable. And when he meets us where we are, Even the most notorious of us sinners is out of reach of the merciful, loving hand of Jesus. Aren't you glad that while we were still sinners, that Christ chose us? Let's go back to Luke chapter 19. We'll start back up in verse five. So when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down, took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He is gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. When I read this account, I'm I'm assuming they moved into the house because it says that, you know, Jesus says salvation came to this house and I just wish I could have been there to hear this conversation. You know, just to be a little fly on the wall hearing what Jesus and Zacchaeus, you know, were talking about, right? Because all of a sudden we see what happened is Zacchaeus moved from being labeled a notorious sinner to one who was willing to make restitution, See, something happened in that encounter that moved Zacchaeus from being a corrupt thief to being one who was willing to go and make amends. Now, we don't know, but it's possible that when they got their little private moment together, that uh, Jesus sat down and gave Zacchaeus, you know, a little lecture, right? Shook a little finger at him. Maybe he reminded Zacchaeus, you're a Jew, 
You know, Zacchaeus, listen, you're part of the nation of Israel. You're one of God's chosen people. I mean, it's possible that in that conversation between Zacchaeus and Jesus, that Zacchaeus was reminded that as a Jew, his relationship with God was based on keeping these laws. It was based on fulfilling his end of the covenant. And without obeying those laws and the covenant, there'd be no relationship with God. And now that's possible, right? It could have been the case because Jesus knew, as did Zacchaeus, they knew what the law stated. They knew what the law required. In the book of Exodus, chapter 2, it says, if someone steals an ox or a sheep, then kills it or sells it, the thief must pay back five oxen for each ox stolen and four sheep for each sheep taken. A thief who is caught must pay in full for everything he stole. If he cannot pay, he must be sold as a slave to pay for his theft. If someone steals an ox or a donkey or a sheep and it's found in the thief's possession, then the thief must pay double the value of the stolen animal, right? Also in the book of Leviticus, we're reminded from chapter six, suppose you cheat in a deal involving a security deposit or you steal or commit fraud or you find lost property and lie about it or you lie while swearing to tell the truth or you commit any other such sin. If you've sinned in any of these ways, you're guilty. You must give back whatever you stole or the money you took by extortion or the security deposit, or the lost property you found, or anything obtained by swearing falsely. You must make restitution by paying the full price plus an additional 20% to the person that you have harmed, right? So they understood, they knew what the law required. It's very possible that Jesus might have guilted Zacchaeus into changing. Think about it. We've all been guilted by somebody, or maybe you've done the guilting, right? You know better Well, this isn't how you were raised. Oh, that's so out of character for you. And what would your mother think? Your grandma would roll over in her grave right right now if she knew how you acted. Oh, you know the rules. You know that's against the law. Like that works. We all know that guilt is a bad motivator. Rare is the person whose life changes because they're reminded of how crappy of a person they are. I mean, there might be a change of actions, right? You've probably heard this classic story. There are a lot of variations, but I like the way Adrian Rogers tells it. If you're not familiar with Adrian Rogers, he's got a deep voice, Southern drawl. I can't even come close, um, but I always hear it in Adrian Rogers' voice. He says, a father told his little four-year-old son to sit down, but the son didn't sit down. So the father said a second time, son, I said, sit down. The boy still didn't sit down. Finally, the father took him by the shoulders and forcefully placed him in the chair. He said, now, son, sit there. The little boy answered, I may be sitting down on the outside, but he added defiantly, I'm standing up on the inside. Friends, we might have a change of actions, But a change that's based on fear or shame or people-pleasing, well, they can look really good on the outside, but that doesn't always change us on the inside. Listen, friends, knowing what I know about Jesus, I cannot believe that the change that took place in Zacchaeus was because he was compelled to change based on what the law required. I believe with all of my heart that Zacchaeus had a change in heart based on what love desired. This might be a little simplistic, but when it comes to loving and even living like Jesus, our lives are changed not based on what the law requires, 
Our lives are changed based on what love desires. Remember, Jesus came to the earth to seek and to save those who are lost, to offer a new covenant, a new relationship between God and man, a new relationship not based on 600 plus checkbox laws to follow, but a relationship based on a command to love. And I wonder in that private meeting with Zacchaeus, I wonder if for the very first time, Zacchaeus experienced the unconditional, unearned, and certainly undeserved love of Christ. And I wonder in that private meeting with Zacchaeus, if maybe for the first time he realized that in the eyes of Jesus that he was not labeled by the worst name he had ever been called that he was not defined by the worst sin that he had ever committed, that he did not have to be marked by any of the sins of his past. And I wonder if in that moment of conversation with Jesus, if he recognized that the gracious, merciful love of God was being demonstrated by his son, Jesus Christ, and that if he received the love that Jesus offered and the life that he wanted to give him, that for Zacchaeus, it would change everything. And I believe that as a result of experience of love of Christ, Zacchaeus determined to make things right. To make them right with his family. To make them right with his friends, if he had any left. To make him right with perfect strangers. Not because it was what the law required, but because it was what love required desired. When I read about Zacchaeus, I have to think about me. I have to think about us. Are there places where we need to make things right? Not because we're bound by a law that requires us to, but because we've received Christ's love and because of his love, we're compelled to do it because that's what his love desires of us. When it comes to righting wrongs that we might have done to other people, we need to ask ourselves, well, what does love desire? When we think of people, maybe we've done little or nothing to show the love of Jesus Christ to. We realize maybe there's poor people, widows, orphans, refugees, homeless people. You know, when we fail to stand up to a bully, we need to ask ourselves, well, what does love desire? When we look back at our past, maybe not too distant past, we think about people that we've devalued, dehumanized, degraded, we need to ask ourselves, what does love desire? When we think of people that we have hurt physically, emotionally, relationally, we need to ask ourselves, what does love desire? This is a point where when I was writing the message, I kind of wanted to ignore what this teaching might be telling me. It was kind of easier just to like, yeah, this is for somebody else. I don't know if I want to take this next step. Because it was easy to start justifying, rationalizing, not trying to make amends, right? It's easy to think to myself, well, um, I bet they've moved on. I bet they don't even remember. They've healed, right? Maybe you're thinking the same thing. Well, maybe so. Maybe they have, but maybe not. So we got to ask ourselves, well, what does love desire? I also started thinking, well, I've, I've confessed it to God, 
I'm forgiven. The blood of Jesus has covered me. Hallelujah. Right? And that's true. But because of his love for me, because of his love for you, we need to ask ourselves a question. What does love desire? What does God's love for me, what does it desire as a response in my own life? See, out of the love that Christ has shown you, it may be that just like Zacchaeus, you need to go and give back. You need to go and pay back. You need to go and repair. You need to go back and replace. When it comes to relationships, you might just need to own your mistakes. You might need to muster up some apologies. You might need to rebuild what you've destroyed because that's what love desires. Making amends, making it right, shouldn't happen because the courts tell us we need to, because someone's going to sue us, because our parents say we should, because our peers are pressuring us to, because we're in a program that says we need to, or because the pastor made us feel guilty on a Sunday morning. Making amends should happen because of the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what his love would desire. Let's pray. The ways that we've hurt you, Jesus, the list is endless. The things that we have done to break your heart, the things that we have done to break the hearts and the lives of people in whose image you created. The list is endless. God, if you reminded us of all the people that we have hurt all at once, we couldn't take it. But I pray that just as the love of Jesus Christ permeated the heart and the life of Zacchaeus and he recognized that there was fixing that needed to be done, that as you remind us of people and individuals that we have hurt um, that we have failed to love, that we have failed to show grace, that we have failed to shower your mercy upon, that you would help us to live and act not out of guilt, God, not because there's some law that requires us to do it, but because we would recognize the love that Jesus Christ has for us. And we would want to make amends because that's what his love would desire. In Jesus, is in your name we pray. Amen.